Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of the Ocean View Podcast. No matter where you're at in our country or around the world, we thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Now sit back and enjoy this week's message. It's always impossible to recognize the good old days when you're still inside of them. It's only through hindsight and retrospect that you can identify that those were the good old days. And he had no idea that for the rest of his life he would refer back to those three years as being the ones that defined him. That everything else would be a footnote to those three years. There were three years walking with Jesus, walking with the Son of God, walking with God in human form. Three years of seeing miracles and sleeping under the stars, the the homelessness, the miraculous. It was all unbelievable. Three years he got to experience that. And he was so young when it started. By most accounts, 12, 13, 14 years old, he was the one who was the youngest. And so he was called the Beloved. And he was also rumored to be the one who wouldn't die. I mean, nobody knew for sure. And he would always protest and say, that's not what he said. But there was this conversation that happened between Jesus and Peter that John overheard. And word got out to the other guys that John wasn't going to die the way the rest of them were. But now he's an old man. He's sitting alone on the island of Patmos with nothing around him. He's the only remaining disciple. And so it's hard to deny the truth of the prophecy that he would not die like the rest of them. I mean, he was the only one who was still around. He had lived the longest. And in retrospect, in hindsight, he had gotten years to pour into other people, to pour the depth of his richness of relationship with Jesus, the Son of God, and to men like Polycarp, some of the early church fathers who would carry this Christianity forward. But there at the end of his life, banished and exiled on the island of Patmos, he appeared to him again. That same Jesus that that he had spent so long with during those three years when he was a young man. That Jesus came to him and spoke. And that's where we're picking up our story this morning. Jesus says to John, write this letter. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. You pray with me. Father, in this moment, I pray that I would become invisible. That your word would be all that we see. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I don't mean to presume that all of us have met, and so I wanted to introduce myself. My name is Tommy, and I get to work with families here at Ocean View. But more importantly, my wife's name is Hannah, and we have four kids who are all under the age of six. This is a picture of them right here. This is Benjamin, our six-year-old, Eli, our four-year-old. There's Anna Kate there. She's two. And this is our latest addition, the newest one to the family. Her name is Grayson, or as Anna Kate calls her, New Baby. Wake up, new baby. Go to bed, new baby. She refuses to say her name. She calls her new baby. And we're so lucky to have such a wonderful family. But I had the unfortunate responsibility a couple of weeks ago of telling our kids that one of their dogs had passed away. You know, we have two dogs. They're miniature Dotsons named Daisy and Bauer. And, and, and they, they live out in our yard. We call them in at night. We have a fenced-in backyard. And, and there's more yard beyond the fence and then a, a bridge that goes into the woods. And, and that night, we called them in and Bauer didn't come. And so we put the kids to bed and Hannah and I looked frantically for Bauer, trying to find him, trying to figure out what was going on. And he just, he just wouldn't come. So we went to bed that night, but we got up early the next morning trying to get out in front of this, whatever might come. And and, and before the kids uh, woke up, we realized that Bauer was no longer with us. So we had to let the kids know. And and Eli and Anna Kate seemed to take it okay. But we were worried about Benjamin. He's six and he's processing things. And so that day I, I drove to his school and I picked him up and I took him out for ice cream just to try to try to let him know what was going on and spend some extra time with him in case he had any questions. And I was prepared for questions. I wasn't necessarily prepared for some of the sweet and funny things that he said in response to our conversation. And I jotted some of them down. One of the things he said was, why does Bauer get to stay here but da- or go to heaven, but Daisy is still stuck here? Daisy's older and meaner. Wait, maybe that's why. Daisy needs to get a lot nicer first. He goes, I think Daisy is so mean because she's so old. Wait, Daisy's never going to die because she's so mean from being so old. And then he, he has his father's attention span. He goes, Dad, I have bad news. Emma broke up with me today. He's six. Emma broke up. She says she's too young to have a boyfriend. I agree with that. She said, oh, and my attitude's really changed over spring break, so we're going to go back to being friends. He's six. And then he came back around and he said, Dad, when Daisy dies and the angel comes to get her, we should see if the angel will take Bauer his ball on her way back up. Because he's going to miss his his ball. And I thought, that's sweet. And I got a little bit teary when he said that, which is why the next one stung a little bit. He goes, Dad, you're old too. When you die, can we bury you in the woods behind our house? And I said, well, son, I think that's a felony. (laughs) And it bothered me a little bit because the activity of burying something that was previously alive is a little bit surreal. I mean, when you see this thing laying there that just moments before had life in it, it can kind of, it can mess with your head a little bit. I mean, as I dug, I remember thinking to myself about that, that verse from the Bible that says, from dust you were created into dust you'll return. I realized that one day I'm going to be on the other side of this earth. 
and the other side of that ground, on the other side of the hole, and likely my kids could be the ones burying me. And I began to wonder, like, what is it that I would want them to know about me? What would I want them to think about me? And I was wrestling with that a couple mornings later when I was taking Benjamin to school and he was still processing and and, and he goes, Dad, you're the next to die. (laughs) And I I said, excuse me? And, And he goes, you're the oldest in our family. Now, what he didn't know is that the day before I had just gotten done playing four on four full court basketball with some of our students who are varsity basketball players. I felt every year of my 36 years the next morning. I mean, I don't know if you've had those moments where I could see myself going up for rebounds and then I would look and realize I hadn't moved. At one point, I was thinking about the fact that I needed to try harder. And while I was distracted by my thought process, someone dribbled around me and scored. I didn't even move. It, it was There's this separation. That this is like a 10-second delay that I was on. And the only thing worse than the fact that my teammate, a varsity basketball player for Socasty, was getting frustrated with me was when he began getting frustrated with himself for getting frustrated with me. That's called pity. And it hurt. He was like, you could, uh, you know, you could catch the ball. It's like, oh, you're right. I should catch the ball. And he's like, no, man, you're fine. I was just messing. You're doing great. It's like, don't do that. So when Ben said that I was the next one to go, it stung a little bit. But I didn't want to not talk about it. I wanted him to know that the communication lines are always open. So I said, Ben, we're nearing the school. I said, maybe we should talk about something else. And he goes, yeah, mom doesn't want to talk about it either. (laughs) And then he said this. He goes, I don't get it, Dad. If we close our eyes here and open them with Jesus, why would we not want to talk about that? And I realized that for most of us, we avoid and deny any talk about death. Like we, it's the only thing that we can count on, and yet we never talk about it. Like, unless Jesus comes back today, we're going to die. And, and we'd rather talk about a million other things than talk about the fact that the only thing we can count on is one day we are going to be on the other side of the dirt. And I don't mean to be morose. It's just true. I mean, God has designed our bodies so that we age, so that every time we look in the mirror, we're reminded of the fact that we're not going to live forever. And so we end up trying to sweep it under the rug and not talk about it. And this is crazy to me when I read letters like the one we just read because the early church had this far different perspective of death. They actually looked forward to it with great anticipation. People like Paul who in Philippians says, I can literally hear the executioner sharpening his sword right now. But man, if I get to go, that's great for me. Bad for y'all, but good for me. Peter in 2 Peter 1 says, I'm about to lay aside my tent. He goes, this, is, this isn't me. This is just a tent. I'm going to lay it aside. I'm going to go be with Jesus. This church in Smyrna that Jesus is writing the letter to, they couldn't avoid talk of death because so many of them were dying. They were being persecuted daily. 
in droves. The persecution in this church would become so severe that, that the, the, emperor, the empire would have to start scheduling soldiers in shifts because they would literally fall over from exhaustion from killing people. Like that's how bad it would become. They couldn't avoid talking about death. And that's why Jesus writes this letter and addresses himself the way that he does. He goes, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. In each of these letters in the book of Revelation that Jesus writes to the churches, the way that he describes himself tells us what he's writing to that church about. He's calling the elephant out of the room. He's going, you guys are going to die. I'm not avoiding talking about that. But I conquered death. He goes, I know your afflictions and your poverty. This word no in the Greek, it's not like I've been briefed, I found out, I read a report. This is like this intimate, like I know what you're going through and some of you need to hear that today. The single mom who's struggling to make ends meet and bring up her family in a godly fashion. What if, it, what if you knew Jesus knew what you're going through? I can't tell you how many times I've clung to this verse In the middle of the night when discouragement sets in and I go, Jesus knows, he feels what I'm going through and he tells this church the same thing. He goes, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is one of those things that is just mind-blowing to me because it's a point when secular history and biblical history intersect. Because we know now that what was going on at the church in Smyrna is that Jewish people were ratting out the Christians. The Jews in that day and age had sort of a deal worked out with the Roman Empire. It's not in writing, but they just, the Roman Empire would learn over years and years that when you mess with Jews, it just, it always backfires. When you try to persecute them, it's like kicking a hornet's nest, like you're going to get bit, so just leave them alone. And they thought that the Christians were a branch of the Jews, and so for a little while they left them alone the problem is that the jews hated christians they thought that they were blasphemers and they wanted to keep the roman empire doing something killing somebody any neck is better than yours and so they would rat out the jews and jesus is going i know about that this is crazy by the way because this is before satellite news and cable tv like john isolated on the island of patmos had no way to know about this unless jesus told him this is it's fascinating to me he goes i know what's going on and and he references something paul wrote in romans chapter 2 where he goes, the, the true Jews are the people of God, the, the people of, you're the people of God now. So the ones who are turning you in are actually participating with Satan. And I know about it. But then he goes further, he goes, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. He doesn't say I'm going to stop them. You see how significant that is. He doesn't say I'm going to make it end. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to put a stop to this. He goes, don't, don't be afraid of it. You're about to suffer. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there are a lot of casual Christians living in Smyrna? Like, like they knew every time they met that they could be arrested. And when the Roman Empire arrested you, it wasn't to sentence you. It was to kill you. They did not believe in keeping people alive for 20 years to punish them. They would either chop off something or kill you and then send you back. Like, you think there are a lot of casual Christians living in Smyrna. 
At every point when they met, they knew that they were literally taking their lives into their hands if they were caught. Their pastor was a guy named Polycarp that we just talked about a minute ago. A guy that John himself had discipled. Jesus discipled John and John discipled Polycarp. There are writings about Polycarp that are not in your Bible. He is a historical figure. And at 66 years old, he was an enemy of the state because they couldn't find him. He was going around telling people about Jesus and they were looking for him and he wouldn't turn his back on Christ. Do you think Polycarp was casual? He realized at any point he could be tortured or persecuted for doing this and he's like, ah, I don't care. He just keeps going. And this is crazy because the church in Smyrna is the only one out of the letters where there's no indictment against them. In each of these letters, Jesus says something to them, like, you better fix this, except the church in Smyrna. He goes, you guys, are, you guys are doing awesome. So to me, I read that and I go, this is the description of a healthy church. There is no indictment in Smyrna, which is ironic, because it's the one that I feel indicts me the most. Do you think there are a lot of casual Christians living in Smyrna? Do you think that there are a lot of casual Christians here? Like right now. If you knew that at any point someone could kick in these doors and we would all be hauled off to jail where we would be executed, would you have still come out this morning? Would you have still risked it? We've become so casual. We don't know what persecution means. You know, we'll come to church if the lighting is a certain way and if the music is a certain way. We'll listen to the word of God if the pastor says it a certain way and doesn't go over his time. Like, we'll give them that. And persecution to us is, well, they changed the worship style. Or, or, or they changed the worship guides and didn't tell us. Like, that's persecution to us. Are you kidding me? Because Polycarp, at 66 years old, they found him. And they dragged him out into the middle of an arena. He's 66. Many people did not want to kill a 66-year-old man. And there's one account where, where a city magistrate was trying to convince him to denounce Christ. He goes, what harm is there in saying, hail Caesar? They're just words. Just say it. We don't want to kill you. They threatened him with a sword. They threatened him with lighting him on fire. They threatened him with feeding him to lions. And they threatened him with throwing rocks at him until he died. And you know what he said? Four score and six years have I served the Lord, and he has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme him? Bring forth what you will. And I read that, and I'm like, would I be able to do that? Like, I think a lot of us would like to believe that we'd be able to do what Polycarp did. But Jesus said, whoever's been entrusted with a little and does well can do a lot. And most of us, if we're honest, we struggle just to spend a daily quiet time with God. Like, just getting alone with him and reading his word. Like, we can't do that, but yet we think we could give our life for him. It's crazy to me. You know, we don't get to the point Polycarp got to by relying on Sunday morning messages alone. We get to that point by spending time with God, what do you want me? Every day alone in his word, listening to the voice of God. And you end up with guys like me up here pleading with you. Like, please just give them five minutes. Just give them five minutes. We can't do it. We've created a culture that's all about us. 
have the opportunity pretty regularly to speak to middle school students at a fellowship of Christian athletes that we started in a, in a local middle school. And uh, we got up to where we had like nearly 400 kids that were coming. And I think it had something to do with the free donuts we were giving away. And one Thursday morning, I said, how many of you guys go to church? A few hands went up. I said, how many of you guys read your Bible at home? So maybe two. And I said, how many of you guys got a donut today? And everybody, you know, you like the donuts? They're like, yeah. And I said, I like mine too. It's going to be all I eat till next Thursday. And they're like, what? So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this donut last. I'm going to enjoy it today. And then next Thursday, I'm going to get another donut. And that's all I'm going to eat. And they thought I was crazy. Some of you guys are doing that spiritually. How strong do you expect to be with a diet that's based solely on donuts? Once a week, coming in here and getting a donut from the stage. We don't read the word. We're, we, we, when we do open it, we're just asking, like, what do I really have to give up in order to have a relationship with God? We spend more time saying, did God really say? Because I don't know. I don't want to be crazy. I don't want to go all in. You know, like, I don't want to get baptized, stand up in front of people. That's weird. I don't want to do a video. That's uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to be one of those Christians that, like, that turns people off. Like, I don't want to be too loud or bold with my faith. I don't want to go too far out there. We spend more time looking for loopholes than looking for opportunities. And casual Christians look for loopholes. It's the polycarp Christians who look for opportunities. I mean, that's what this church was doing. And Jesus has no indictment against them. He's like, even in their suffering, they're looking for an opportunity to glorify me. I mean, that's what polycarp did. I, I, I call it the polycarp pivot. Because for many of us, if we're put in that position, like, like, like deny Christ... Or you're going to lose your life. We're going, oh, these are only words? Like, all I have to do is say, blah, 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 blah. We're looking for the loophole. I don't have to actually mean it, right? Like, yeah, I get, you know. And Polycarp goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I have an opportunity right now to, get, to point people to him. Look at what he says. He goes, four score and six years have I served him. And he has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme him? It's not about me. I'm not looking for a loophole here. I'm looking for an opportunity to point people to Jesus. I mean, that's what the polycarp Christians do. Even in your suffering, there's an opportunity there because it's not about us. It was easy for polycarp to die because he'd been doing it his whole life. He wasn't all the time looking to get his needs met and looking for what his rights were or how to stand up for himself. He's going, I'm going to die to myself to get to live with Christ. And that's what, that's what Jesus predicted too. He says, whoever wishes to save his soul must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul says something similar. He goes, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, there's this, there's this erroneous, egregious teaching in the church that somehow God wants to make your life better. That Jesus died to give you a better life. And you guys, I'm sorry. But if that were true, this letter would be nonsense. And Jesus writes to them and he goes, you're going to die. Didn't die to make your life better. He writes it, he goes, you're going, that's where this thing is headed. And I know about it. 
And I'm not going to stop it. I want you to glorify me in your death. You're going to suffer. But I'm worth it. He says, if you remain faithful, even to the point of death, I'll give you the crown of life. He says in Matthew, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm until the end will be saved. My wife and I were talking recently about this message. And she goes, she goes, do you think it was easier for them back then? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, because they had Jesus so recently in the rear view. You got guys like Polycarp who are like, go ahead and kill me. Like, whatever, I'm going to go be with Jesus. You understand like how much better it is to be with Jesus? So I'm not scared of death. He overcame death. That's what he says in this letter. He goes, I'm not scared of dying. Oh, please don't make me go be with Jesus. You know, like, kill me. I don't care. She goes, do you think the boldness came from the fact that it was so recent in their rear view? And I thought about it. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I do. And I think that's why Jesus said this. The further we get from then, the harder it's going to become. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's going, church at Ocean View, 2,000 years later, It's going to be hard to not grow casual with me. But I'm worth it. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. It's so hard. It's so hard to stay zealous about him. And to not let this casualness just flow in. Because we've created a church culture where it's all about us. How do you know if you're casual or not? I prayed about this this week and I wrote down some questions. Do you spend time alone with God? Do you spend more time excusing behavior or allowing God to change your behavior? Do you misquote the Bible to justify your actions? Do you ever hear yourself asking, did God really say? Do you change the plain text meaning of things God wrote in this book rather than allowing this book to change you? Do you long for eternity? So many of us are so in love with our little kingdoms here that we have no room for God bringing in his kingdom. We actually would put that off if we could because it would mean the end of our kingdoms. Do you long for eternity? Do you view suffering as an opportunity to point people to Jesus? Do you die to yourself so often that if called upon to die physically, it'd be no big deal? Just one more death. Or are you preoccupied with getting your needs met? That question that Hannah asked me, was it easier for them? Maybe. But I put these two verses together because I wanted you to see this. Jesus said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So, Ocean View. Remain faithful. Don't get casual. Remain faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. The question this morning is, are you casual? And you guys, I believe that my job as a communicator is not to make you laugh or to entertain you 
or to bring great showmanship or humor. It's simply to hold up this book. James 1 says that this is a mirror. The thing about mirrors is you don't have to show someone one and then go, now fix your lipstick and fix your hair. You look bad. All you got to do is hold up the mirror. They know what to do. This is me holding up the mirror. Are you casual? Jesus said in the letter last week, repent. Turn around. Do the things you did at first. Do whatever you got to do to get back to where you're not casual anymore. And you guys, I was digging, I was digging that hole for the dog. And I was thinking about the fact that one day I'm going to be on the other side of that. And my kids are going to be standing up here looking down at me. And it's like, what do I want them to say about me? And I realized, I want them to say that I wasn't pretending. That I meant everything that I ever said. That I was willing to die for this thing because I had died my whole life anyway. I was so committed to him because he's worth it. So are you pretending? Let me pray with you. Father, if anybody in this room has been pretending, Lord, I'd ask that you reveal that to them now, that they'd lay that down. Father, thank you so much for preserving the sacred text for us so that we could be warned about becoming casual. We give you this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information about the ministries at Ocean View, or if you'd like to speak to someone directly, you can visit our website at www.ovbc.org. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.